There is a boot camp for missionaries. It's called Teen Missions. It's actually for teen missionaries. And uh, teen, at Teen Missions, these campers uh, virtually give up their entire summer for this program, uh, which is a boot camp on evangelism. And after this two-week boot camp, then they go out into the world about teams of 25. So they are schooled in evangelism, construction, and Bible studies. Prior to going into the world, they go to this kind of physical training as well, and they spend two weeks in Merritt Island, Florida, learning on how to deal with the trials of missionary work. Campers raise their own camp and travel fees, plus enough for another child, which runs them about $2,500 to $4,000. So that's a pretty good investment for a boot camp. On an average day at Teen Missions Camp, the day begins with what is either lovingly or loathingly called the OC, which is the obstacle course. So you can kind of see some of the pictures there. The obstacle course is meant to build teamwork and mental and physical stamina. At running speed, the campers complete obstacles inspired by, you guessed it, biblical stories. There is the Mount Sinai pile of tires that they need to climb or go over. There is Jacob's ladder, which is a rope ladder. And they also get to swing over a retention pond, wiggle through small plastic tubes, climb wooden walls painted with words like anxiety in order to overcome it, I guess. Standing at least 10 feet high, these walls require the entire team to overcome it. Campers quickly realize what they used to take for granted, air conditioning being the biggest one. One year, the leader, Mr. Bland, took a group of teens to Peru and it went badly. One teen was bit by a poisonous snake and two others nearly drowned. And I think that is what inspired him to kind of give this boot camp uh, so that they could teach the kids training and discipline. We tell the kids this is a missionary training camp. It is not a pamper camp. Today, it is among the most rigorous missionary training programs in the country. How many people want to sign up? Well, you can't if you're not a teen. Yeah, you're still some, so there's some eligible uh, missionaries maybe in here today. I'm glad I didn't know about I'm Well, I wasn't saved when I was a teenager, but I can imagine being like, this is awesome. I'm going to put myself to the test and go through this little boot camp training. And then I'm going to come out of that boot camp training and I'm going to feel like I can tackle anything. That's kind of exactly what happened to me in Bible college. As a matter of fact, I didn't even feel like I needed to finish Bible college. Halfway through, I knew I was good to go. I'm like, this is nothing. I can do it on my own. I remember thinking to myself, everyone was doing it wrong, and I was the only one who knew how to do it right. And therefore, I'm going to graduate with my little associate's degree, and I'm going to go out and plant a church. Thankfully, logic and I think my wife prevailed. And the Lord prevailed in teaching me to stay in. But even afterwards, I still thought that I was ready. A few years into the pastorate, 
I am not ready. Nor was I ready at that time. It's funny, as great as these programs are, Jesus, he's got his own boot camp. He's got his own training program, and his training program isn't just for a few weeks. You know how long his training program lasts? Lasts a lifetime. His training program, his boot camp, does not focus so much on our physical stamina, but our spiritual. Not growing our muscles, but growing our faith. The good thing about this program is, guess what? It's free. You don't have to pay a dime. And as soon as you become a follower of Jesus, guess what? You're automatically enrolled. The program is not optional. It's mandatory. And it's not on our schedule, but it's on his. Kind of like a global pandemic. It's got a name. It's called discipleship. And every single one of us who follow Jesus, are part of this training program. Jesus now kind of puts his disciples, his apostles, on an accelerated program. So when we are looking at this passage, we've got to remember that we are actually in Jesus' third year of ministry. The Gospel of John focuses primarily on his last week or last few days of his life. So the disciples have been with Jesus for quite some time. And now that Jesus is going to leave them, He wants them to learn certain things about ministry. He wants them to learn two very, very important things here. That the the burden of ministry falls on them, and he also wants them to learn how they are to succeed at that. Where they are to get their resources from. So in this context, he's training them, and he's using food as an example. And he gives them not food for thought, but he gives them food for faith. Folks, next to the resurrection, this is the most attested miracle in the Gospels as it is found in all four. What does that tell us? That God wants us to learn something. God wants us to remember something very, very important about our mission and who we are to rely on for the success of that mission. So this is a a program within the larger program and within this little program that he now ushers his disciples into. I see three stages that we're going to be looking at today. The first stage of this is the invitation, verses 1 through 6. After these things, after everything, the discourse that Jesus just gave, he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This... He was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. There's an article in the New York Times that highlights a new classroom learning technique. It's called the pre-final final final test. 
students take their final test on the first day of class. Have you heard about this? So they take their test on the first day of class, obviously, uh, before they have learned all the material. So most of them fail it. However, it has positive effects on how they learn for the rest of the semester, overcoming what researchers call the fluency illusion. The article says the problem is that we often misjudge the depth of what we know or what we understand, and we are duped by a misperception of fluency, believing that because facts or formulas or arguments are easy to remember right now, they will remain that way tomorrow or the next day. Once we feel like we have a subject down, we move on without further study, assuming that further study will not strengthen our memory of the material. How often does God have to repeat certain tests with us? How many people get it down the first time? You're shaking your head, Anne, yeah? How many people get the test down the first time? Not, not me. And so often, right, when we get through something that God puts us into, we're like, oh, I got that. I'm good to go. I don't need to go back there anymore. And then Jesus, the Lord, enters us into that test again, and we realize that we were not as fluent in this exam as we once thought. We have to remember something. So Jesus is not really testing his disciples on something they haven't seen. They have been with him. They've seen Jesus change the water into the wine. They've seen Jesus heal all of these individuals, and now he turns to them and he tests them. I want us to look at some of the other Gospels and as what it says here, Jesus is teaching them a crucial aspect of the needs of ministry and personal resources. He tests them. So in the other Gospels, what I want us to see here is that Jesus said something to them. So the people are following him, and now John is going to get to why the people are following him, and he kind of alludes to it now. But afterwards, Jesus is going to pick up with the crowds again. So the, why are the crowds following him? Because they're seeing him do all these wonderful things. So they're following him, but now Jesus takes this, even though Jesus knows that their faith at this point is very superficial, he has compassion on them. As a matter of fact, that's what it says in another gospel. He looks at them like sheep without a shepherd. And this isn't just a spiritual need that he is going to meet with these individuals. And remember, the disciples and the apostles represent who? all of us, the church. And he looks at them, and it's funny, because the disciples kind of catch this before it even happens. In the other Gospels, it says that they saw the crowds coming. And what do they do? They want to get this thing before it gets too bad. So they go to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, guess what? You're going to have to get rid of these guys, because we don't have enough food to feed them. So what do they want to do? They just want to get rid of the problem. And now here we have this conversation with Philip. But in the other Gospels, Jesus turns to them and says something to them. It's radically important. He says to them, you give them something to eat. He tests them. You want to get rid of them. You don't want to deal with the problem. I used, you're probably wondering why I used the word invitation here, aren't you? You're like, wait a second, Pastor Mark. Tests aren't usually invitations. An invitation is something nice. It's something that we kind of welcome. We want to be invited to stuff. Sometimes, maybe not. But 
I look at this and I use the word invitation for a reason because we also, we have this negative connotation about tests. But when we look at what Jesus is doing here, he's inviting them alongside himself to join him in this mission, to be a part of feeding these individuals. And he's inviting them to do a couple of things, not just to be a co-laborer with him on this mission. He's inviting them to learn more about him. That's what tests do. They teach us more about the character and the power of who it is we're following. He's also inviting them, and this is why we balk at tests, he's inviting them to learn about themselves. That's what we don't want to see, do we? That's why we tend to avoid tests. That's why we don't like them. When I looked up this word test, this definition really stood out to me. This is not good. To endeavor to discover the nature or character of something. How many people want to see what's inside themselves? And that's what happens. So the, but the only way, folks, we are not going to grow as Christians in a padded room environment. You it's just not going to happen. So what does Jesus do is he enters us into these tests. He brings us into these, this, this, this is huge. Sorry about that, kicking. This is really, really big. This isn't a small problem. So the number is 5,000 people, but that was just the men that were counted. And we know that women and children are present. So this is close to 12 to 15,000 people that Jesus now turns to his disciple and he's like, what are you going to do about it? I think of this word test and I think of the, the, the testing. And, and these, we can't audit these tests. These are, these are class participation that Jesus just throws us into. And I think of the, when they test the submarine and they test the uh, integrity of the hull. So you know how they test the hull? They take it down really, really deep. You know what that's called? It's called a shakedown cruise. I, I, I'm going to use that word for us, that phrase for the rest of my life. Jesus puts us on shakedown cruises. Not, he doesn't put us on the love boat. We want to be on the love boat. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're going to be on a shakedown cruise. I'm going to take you down to this depth. And when you go down to this depth, you're going to see those leaks. That is the only way that we're going to grow in our faith is by being pushed to our limits. And that's the only way that we're going to get to see him work when we're pushed to those limits. It's a shakedown cruise. Disciples want to get rid of him. He's like, no, 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 no. He turns to them and he says, you give them something to eat. He places the burden of that ministry on the disciples. He says that and he turns to Philip he asked Philip, and you know at this point, Philip's is like, why did I make eye contact with the teacher? <laughs> you know, Philip's like, don't, don't call on me. No, no. Oh, Philip, where do we get these people something to eat? No, I knew it. You know, and Andrew and Peter are, they're like, whew, all right, I'm out of that one. And he put, but he places the burden of ministry on them. You do it. You do it. And they're like, what do you, what do you mean? Can't we just get rid of them, Lord? Can't, and that's what we want to do sometimes. We want people to fend for themselves. Or, or we look at other people. Lord, can't you call Peter? He's, well, he's got more than I do. 
Lord, can't you? What are you going to do? The burden of ministry, of meeting people's needs, falls on every single one of us in this church. What are you going to do? Don't look around, right? Look right here. What are, we, what are you going to do with this situation? He wants them to understand their responsibility, but he also wants them to understand where they get the resources for that responsibility. It's an invitation. How are you going to solve this? It's not a small task, is it? But there's no excuses because we got everything we need. Brings us to our next stage, which is the participation, verses 7 through 9. Here's the answers. Philip, what do you got? Philip answered, and he said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive just a little. And I want you to remember that he says that. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad. He's got a five loaves, five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ tells a story of the famous oil field. It's called Yates Oil, oil Field or Yates Pool. During the Depression era, this field was owned by a sheep ranch owner by the name of Mr. Yates. He wasn't able to make enough on his ranching operation to pay the principal and interest on the mortgage, so he was in danger of losing this ranch. So with little money and with little clothes or food for his family, like many others, he had to live on government subsidy. Day after day, as he grazed his sheep over the rolling West Texas hills, he was no doubtly greatly troubled about his next paycheck. Then a seismographic crew from an oil company came into the area and asked if they could drill. They had a suspicion that there might be oil on his land, so they drilled this well called a wildcat well. What do you think happened? Here's actually a picture of the gusher on his land. They struck a huge reserve at 1,115 feet. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were more than twice as large, and even after 30 years, the government tested one of the wells and it still had the potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day. Mr. Yates, all along, owned all of it. He never knew it. His untapped resource. And what did he do? He went to handouts to the government, didn't he? Folks, that happens with us all the time. And if there is one thing that we need to learn from this passage today is the resource that we have in Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. It is absolutely never going to run out and he is going to provide enough for us for what he has called us and asked us to do. We have three responses here. Three responses here. And they kind of get better, of course, ending with the best one. 
as we go along. So let's look at the responses here because they don't see this resource. Philip, his first answer, he's looking at the world. So Philip's answer actually doesn't really answer Jesus' question, and it really betrays what Philip is looking at. So Jesus says, where? He goes, where are we going to find the food? So Jesus knows the food's there. He's got to find it. So, but Philip goes to the what? And Philip is like, okay, Lord, you know what? You might be good with theology. You might, might be good with the, the spiritual aspects of life, but I'm going to give you a, listen in, a lesson in economics. I want you to listen here right now. Let me just, let me pull out my, my little Israeli IT calculator here, whatever it is, and I'm going to just do the math for you because we're not even going to attempt to approach this problem because it is fiscally impossible. Lord, it just doesn't add up. Philip is a number cruncher, and he's looking at the odds against them, and he's looking at the statistics, and he's looking at the available money. And so he says it's actually eight months' worth of wages. And he says, hey, it's just not even going to cut it, not even for them to receive how much? A little bit. Just a little bit. He's concerned about the odds. And now, I, I just want to throw this out here. Look, we, we, it is really important to be financially responsible as a church, no doubt. And we have, I think, one of the most uh, faithful stewards, uh, as stewardships over what we've been given. Our church is absolutely wonderful. But what we cannot do is look at what we don't have and then limit what God wants to do through us. We can't just base everything that we do off of what we think are the resources that are needed to complete that mission. So he's looking out there and he's like, look, 15,000 people, there's no way. Lord, we can't even attempt to do it. He doesn't even attempt it. We're not going to do it. And what happens, and I think personally, we take stock. So look, I'm a budget guy, and I'll do this all the time, and I'll look at those big churches. And you know what I say? They can do more because their budgets are bigger. That is not true. It's not true. Because we're, we're leaving someone out of the calculation, and that's exactly what Philip does, isn't it? Because Jesus plus nothing is everything. We can't, yeah, you're right. No, it's good, Linda. What did you say? <laughs> it's true. He can take nothing, and he can expand it into anything he wants to. Philip, and a lot of times, we're doing the same thing. I know. I do the same thing. And I'm like, Lord, those, their budgets are so much better. That's why they can do so much. That's why they can attract so many people. That's why they can reach their community. That's why, that's why. And I make excuses, and I'm like, ah, it's just impossible. The math just doesn't add up. And this kicked me in the gut this week, reading this passage. All right, so how about, how about the next answer? How about Andrew? Andrew's a little better. 
right? Because at least he goes where? And he's like, all right, I'm going to go find some food. And Andrew runs around and he starts collecting the scraps or whatever he can. But he's, he's a kind of glass half empty type of guy, isn't he? Because he gets something and he's like, ah, what is this going to do? How is this going to meet the need of all of these people? We might as well not even bother with it. So, it, but at least, at least we got to give him uh, a little, little benefit of the doubt because he actually goes out and he's, he's kind of looking for stuff. But what's, again, what is he doing? He's not looking, he's looking to the what and not to the who. It's not the what, it's the who that matters in this. And we often look to the what. We look at our own resources. And, and, and on a personal note, we look at our own gifts and abilities. And what happens? Oh, I don't have, I don't have the, the gift of, of preaching. Oh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Oh, I don't have this or that gift. And Andrew, instead of going to the little lad and saying to him, hey, can I have your lunch? Wait do you see what Jesus is going to do with this. That's faith. Because he knows that once he places that food in the hands of Jesus, Jesus is going to do something miraculous. But instead, he goes to Jesus and he's like, ah, this is all I got. This is nothing. And he lets him know. What are they using? They're using common sense. But common sense that does not factor in Jesus Christ is stupidity. If we leave out Christ in what he can do through us and through what we have to offer, it's stupidity. It's illogical because he's the biggest factor. Thomas Carlyle gave some insight with this statement. He said, men are like the gods that they serve. Meaning, we're going to conduct our lives according to our concept of who we think he is and what we think he can do. And if we're looking out here all the time and looking at this and looking at the human capabilities, then we're going to act accordingly. But if we're looking up there and we're looking at him and we're trusting in him and we know that he's a God who owns all the cattle on a thousand hills, so therefore we're never going to lack any beef, then we're going to go out and we're going to do exactly what he's asked us to do and we're going to bring to him what we have and allow him to work through that. But we often get caught up like Philip and Andrew. We look at our limitations. God often uses children to shame the adults. Now, we got a little kid just walked into the classroom, didn't he? And he's like, hey, guys, let me, I'm just going to give this to Jesus. And they're all like hanging out and they're looking. How many times has God used children to shame the adults? What's the type of faith that we're supposed to have in God? It's a childlike faith. Because children aren't, they're not analyzing, you know. You, you tell your kids something like, hey, we're going to try to go to Disneyland. All right, let's go. They don't know about money. They don't know about travel. They don't think about dying in a plane crash. They don't think about anything. They don't think about waiting in the lines. They're like, Disneyland, we're going. All right, we're there. It's childlike faith. But that's the faith we got to have in him. He's asked us to feed 15,000 people. Okay, how are we going to do it, Lord? Let's do this. Let's get this done. That kid didn't have to offer his snack, did he? Do you think other people had food there? I'm assuming so. 
So what are they thinking? Oh, no, 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 no. It's all I got. I'm not going to give this up. If I give this up, I'm not going to have any for myself. And maybe we're like that. No, 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 it's all I got, Lord. You ain't taking this. Or maybe we're like them before. Just send them away. Go get, there's takeout. There's Uber Eats. Why can't we just do that with them, Lord? Stephen Cole says this, we must yield what we have, not what we don't have. That's pretty obvious, I guess, right? But so often we make excuses about what we don't have and we fail to offer Jesus what we do have. If I had more money, I'd give regularly to the church. If I had the gift of evangelism, I would witness more. If I had the ability to others have, I'd serve the Lord. But Jesus didn't use the bread that they didn't have. He used the bread that they did have. He used five loaves and two fish. Jesus doesn't ask you to give him what you don't have. He asks, him, he asks you to give you what you do have. There's a preacher wanted to get his congregant in a little trouble. So he said, hey, if you had two farms, would you give one to the Lord? Yes, I'd, of course I'd give one to the Lord. I wish I were in such a position. Oh, okay, okay. Hey, if you had $20,000, would you give $10,000 to the Lord? Oh, yeah, I would. Absolutely, I would give $10,000 to the Lord. I'm not, you know, I'm not asking you, Patrick, right now. You're looking at me funny. Don't worry. Maybe I'll ask you later. Just five. And then he goes to him, and he goes, if I had $20,000, I'd give half to the Lord. And then he goes to him, if you had two pigs, would you give one to the Lord? And the guy goes, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. He asks us to give them what we have. And notice, this is, this is a lesson in quality and quantity. Because the bread that is depicted here, the, this bread is a poor man's loaf. So not Jesus takes the inadequate. That's exactly what he does. He takes people who are inadequate. I think Paul talks about that. Doesn't Paul say that? What, what does Paul say in reference to ministry? Who is adequate for the task? Nobody. I mean, that's a lesson that we all have to learn. That's a lesson that I learn every week. I am not adequate for this at all, period. That's just it. Our adequacy is from him. And you cannot exhaust that. And that's what he wants us to see here. The boy didn't have to give his lunch, but he said, here, here you go. Hands it over to him. This little boy. God uses him to do what? Feed thousands. Brings us to our last and final stage of satisfaction. Verses 10 through 15. Jesus says, have the people sit down. There was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having, having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, and likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. They gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, 
When people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Nick Vucicic, I think is how you say it. He is a uh, 25-year-old Australian. He was born without limbs. His parents, who are devout Christians, planted a church in Australia 11 months before he was born, and they found it hard to understand how God could use their son's loss for good. Should have got a picture of Nick. I'll have to post a picture on Facebook or something. Reading in Sunday school about being made in the image of God seemed like a cruel joke to Nick. He seesawed between despair and begging God to grow arms and legs for him. At the age of eight, he contemplated suicide. When he was 15, though, one story in the Bible answered one of his toughest questions. It's the story of the blind man. Jesus said that he was born this way so that the work of God could be revealed through him. He said, that gave me peace. I turned to the Lord and I said, here I am. Use me, mold me. Make me the man that you want me to be. He learned to write using the two toes on a partial foot that protrudes from his body He also learned how to throw tennis balls, answer the phone, walk and swim. I can't even do that, all of that, and I have all of my limbs. He invented new ways to shave and brush his own teeth. He even earned double degrees in accounting and financial planning by the age of 21. He has since, he can help Philip with math, he has since become a motivational speaker to Christian congregations in over 12 countries. He has ministered to over 2 million people face-to-face. He also oversees Life Without Limbs, an organization for the physically disabled. He's got a new book that's, he's got a book that came out, No Arms, No Legs, No Worries. It was released in 2009. Thousands come to hear him preach, preach. His ministry has gone global. That's quite a resume for a boy without any arms and legs. Why? Who did he give it to? He gave it to Jesus. We have absolutely no excuses whatsoever, do we? Whatever we have, when we place it in his hands, he will use it for his kingdom. Doesn't matter. And we are all given different amounts, folks. Some got like a crumb. That's okay. He can, he can multiply the crumb. Some have 10 loaves. Some have 20 loaves. It doesn't matter. What matters is when we place it in his hands. And then he's the one who blesses it. He's the one who multiplies it. And then he lets us participate in feeding the masses. So Jesus does something in the, in the other Gospels, and before he gives thanks, or while he's giving thanks, and I want to point these things out, it says that he does what? He looks up to heaven. 
What a principle, right? That is where we're to look because that's where our resources come from. Our resources do not come from down here. And if we're looking down here, then we're going to act like we have our resources from down here. He looks up to heaven and he gives thanks. Oh, there's a concept. He gives thanks for what he has. It's the glass half full. You might not have a lot. It doesn't matter. Give it to him and watch him use it, whatever it is. That's what he calls us to do. Also, it says here in, in John's gospel that he, he handed it out, but he had it distributed. He used, he used the disciples to distribute it. That's, there's the, there you have the mission of the church, right? You take, God, God gives you a couple loaves and fishes. You then, in turn, say, here, Lord, here's my loaves and fishes. What can you do with it, Lord? The Lord blesses it, and then he gives it back to you, and he uses you to go and distribute that to feed thousands. That's the church. That's what we're here for. It's not so that we can eat, it's so that we can get fed, so that we can grow, and so that we can take what God has given us and give it to a, a world that is dying of hunger. And not just feeding the world, feeding each other, sharing our lunches with everyone around us. It's the mission of the church. It's what we're here to do. How many loaves and fishes you got? Are you holding on to them? Because look at what he does. What's, I use the word satisfaction because in the other Gospels it says they're satisfied. These people are fat and full. And they're like, I don't, even, I don't even want seconds. I can't even. <laughs> that dude's awesome. But they, they are in a food coma and they're posting on Facebook right now and they're like, whew. Feeling good, thanks to Jesus and his disciples. Been well fed right here. They're no longer hungry, are they? And they're satisfied. Couple loaves, couple fishes, little boy. He just fed thousands of people. Thousands of people because he gave it to Jesus Christ. I look at this in terms of our expectations. What do we expect God to do through us? If we expect God just to think that we're going to take our little, you know, lunchable and we're just going to kind of eat it for ourselves and maybe share a cracker with someone, we're not. We don't have good expectations of God. This is what he can do through a little boy or a little girl who has a little faith. I'm kind of a half glass filled kind of pastor sometimes. And as I said, this, this passage has done some shaking. They're not a big church. We don't have a lot of members. Does it matter? No, it doesn't. Can we f turn this community upside down? Sure. Why? Because we got a big God. It's unlimited. 
And he can, it doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. Just give him what you got. Watch him bless it. Either we believe in a Savior who can take a small boy's snack and feed thousands, or we don't. How many times has he done this in the Old Testament? What do they do in the Old Testament? Who do they look at in the Old Testament? Remember David? What were they looking at? Saul? Right? Because he was big. He was good looking. And, and, and did, he, did he do what he was supposed to do? Nope. You remember Samuel? He's like, oh, these guys must be the ones, right? And they're like, God's like, no, I got someone different. He's out taking care of the sheep. And then what happens with Goliath? David comes forward and Saul's like, take my armor. It's the best on the line. And David's like, no, I'm not going to take that. Why? Because David had his armor. And what does he do? He slays the giant. Not because of who David was, but because of the God that he trusted in. Gideon's army takes Gideon's army, cuts it in half. So I don't need this many people. You guys got way too many folks right now. He cuts it down. He cuts it down. We want to increase it, don't we? We're like, we need all the tanks. Come on, let's go plow through Gorham. Let's get all the tanks and bombs. And we're like, that's when we're ready to go, when we're looking at these things. Maybe we're thinking if we, if we give it, we're not going to get, we're, we're not going to have nothing left, right? Maybe that's what we're thinking. I'm exhausted. I got nothing left. Jesus takes care of that, doesn't he? Because what's he give the disciples? Leftovers. There, that's Peter. He's like, no one's touching my leftovers. Puts his name on it. <laughs> Don't take that. What is he, what is, what's he telling us? Number one, he gives them a doggy bag to take home and a reminder, constant reminder. Oh, yeah, remember that day that Jesus fed that 5,000? They're going to forget. They do. We all do. But what's he telling them? That when you give there's going to be plenty left for you. I'm not going to forget about you in this process. He's not going to do it. He won't. We go, we feed, we give, we give to him what we have, and he takes care of us and he makes sure we're well fed too. Because that amount it was more than what was given in the first place. It blew it away. And we get to use, we get to see him work through us. It's what he wants to do with us, folks. Don't hold back your lunch. Because in the end, that's all we're going to have. Give it to Him and watch what He can do with it. The folks didn't get the lesson. The lesson fails short for the crowds. They're in it just for the food. What do they want to do? They want a king. They're like, whoa, dude, if He can do this with food... What can he do with money? <laughs> what can he do with armies? Jesus is a king, but he's a real different one, isn't he? He's not one that relies on horses or soldiers. 
He's one that uses little boys and little girls who offer up what they have, and he uses that to establish his kingdom here on earth. When, we, when given to Jesus, our little is always, always more than enough. Doesn't matter what our limitations are. Doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are. It's not what we don't have. It's who we know. That's what matters. You know what these two numbers are? 120... 18,266. 120 is about the number of people that attend our church. Uh, the members are in the 90s, I think, but we get around 120. 18,266 is the uh, census for Gorham, 2019 or 20, I believe. Think Jesus can handle these numbers through us? Absolutely. Just got to give them what we have. Give them your lunch. He's got a plan. He knows what he intends to do through us. Father, Lord, thank you for such a practical lesson on faith. Lord, I know every day I fall so short of that. Help us to see how you can use so little to accomplish so much. Help us to offer you what we have for your glory and your kingdom. Use us mightily for your name. We pray.